return of the midweeks. Hello, dear friends. It is time for the midweeks. We're going to continue on with Samuel. This is when things really start to fall apart for Saul. We're in chapter 13, and Samuel, the first book of Samuel, contains the rise and not fall of Samuel, but the rise and then death of Samuel as he hands on, hands over the rule of Israel as the prophet priest to the king and starts the kingship. But the first book of Samuel does contain the rise and fall of King Saul. And both books contain the rise and degrading of King David. But this is where we begin with the fall of King Saul. In the last chapter, he won that big battle against Nahash. And now we're going to see things begin to fall apart. So without any further ado, let's check out 1 Samuel 13. Verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years, sorry, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Okay, so here, this is a really interesting verse here. Um, and it's the subject of controversy. So let's talk about why it's an interesting verse. It announces the length of Saul's reign. Now, he's still reigning. So very often, or sometimes, at least one other example. So I'll scratch my very often. I'll say at least one other time. When the scriptures give the length of a reign, it's really the indication that you're about halfway through the story. So if you go back to Samson, um, at about halfway through Samson's life, right before he starts to you know get entangled with the prostitutes and then eventually get destroyed by Delilah, it tells you how long he reigned over Israel for. And so here we have a similar thing. We have this reign length declaration, which is signaling the the beginning of the downward slide for Saul. But this reign length declaration it, uh, looks weird because it says he lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, blah, 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 blah. Um, and people don't, there's some, some controversy. Is it supposed to be translated, Saul was one years old when he became king and uh, reigned over Israel for two years? Um, it's, it's uncertain exactly how to translate this. Some people say that it's corrupted and that the numbers aren't correct or what, because it doesn't seem right that it says that he reigned for two years over Israel and he chose 3,000 men. Like, this is two years later that this happened, and I'll tell you why in a second. So this first verse, most Bibles will have a footnote saying that they've tried to figure out what to do with this. There, I think, as far as I understand it, one of the ancient texts even doesn't even have the numbers in it. It's just blanked out. So it's a very difficult translation issue that becomes an interpretation issue, and you should just know about that. I don't think that that breaks the trustworthiness of Scripture, but this declaration of Saul's life either has to be explained symbolically as symbolic years, or the years need to be supplied, or you have to say it's corrupted and just say we're not sure exactly what this information is supposed to convey. And that happens. You know, if you are reading a newer translation, like an ESV, every once in a while there'll be a footnote that says, where the translators say, we're not sure what this verse means. And often it's because there might be a Hebrew word that they're unsure what the definition is. It might be a, the, an instance where it's the only appearance of that word in the Old Testament. And so you don't know what it means by comparison to other words in the Old Testament. Maybe you can't figure out what it means in comparison to other ancient Semitic languages like Ugaritic. So 
um, or the grammar might just be a total toss-up and so it's hard to translate. So usually what the translators nowadays do is they try to be honest about it when they're unsure about it and then um, the reader can know not to build a big theology on a verse that is difficult to translate or impossible to be totally sure how to understand it. And so I appreciate that. I think honesty is the best policy with all of this stuff and people can make their own choices. And that's a way of honoring God's word. If you're not sure what it means, then don't be sure what it means and trust God. So there we go. Uh, verse two, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, so we have the introduction to the problem here. In this chapter, the problem is going to be that Saul sacrifices to the Lord instead of Samuel. And so he, he's, in one sense, as king, he's transgressed the role of kingship by sacrificing without a priest or without the prophet there. Um, the reign over Israel kind of ha ended up with three um, messianic roles, prophet, priest, and king. And they're only truly united in, uh, David does it a little bit, but they're only truly united in Christ himself, the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king. And here is Saul. He's not called to be a priest. He's not called to be a prophet. He's called to be the king. And so there's going to be a problem there with him offering sacrifices, which is really the role of a priest. And, but it's, it's brought about by the fact that Jonathan has a successful military attack on the Philistines. Um, at Geba, and in response to this, Saul knows that there's going to be a big fight coming, so he calls out all of Israel by blowing the trumpet, saying, let the Hebrews hear, and then also the Philistines are going to muster against them. So they've picked a fight. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. There's a bit of an echo there of the Abrahamic promise, right? That, that Abraham's children aren't going to be able to be numbered for multitude like the sand of the sea. So they're using the same imagery to have like a huge host. But now this time it's the Philistines that are the ones without number. And they came up and encamped at, in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Okay, so there's this small victory from Jonathan. And Israel's called out, and the Philistines come out, and they're called out in an amazing number. The Philistines realize that this is their chance to take control of Israel again. And if they don't, they might not ever really have a chance to do that. So they're called out en masse. And when they're called out, the Israelites are made very afraid. And there's a few verses that explain exactly how much fleeing is going on there. People are hiding themselves. And so the fact that it goes into so much detail is really meant to um, help us 
feel that their fighting spirit is lost and they're afraid. And so Saul hasn't run away, but the people following him are not full of confidence in winning this battle, and many people were running away. Remember a few verses ago, Saul's calling them out to battle, and it uses that word, let the Hebrews hear, and now verse 7, it says the Hebrews cross the fords of the Jordan. So they're trying to put a river in between themselves and the Philistines. And he waited seven days, this is verse 8, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So here's the issue. Um, Saul is waiting for Samuel to come, and Samuel's late. Um, is he late, late, or does it just feel late? But the issue for from Saul's perspective is that the people are leaving him, and Saul's confidence at the moment is in the size of his army. Okay, he's worried about people leading, leaving him. And so here is a chink in his armor. Here is his um, feet of clay. Saul is not trusting the Lord with many or few. And remember, Saul would have probably heard the story of Gideon, how God gave Gideon a great big army, but then had to diminish it to a small troop um, through that whole episode with the drinking, by the, drinking with your hand or not with your hand uh, in the river. And so he would have known that sometimes God lets the army get small in order to do something great. And, but Saul is fearing man and he's looking at the people and he's seeing his army desert him. And so he's motivated by this scattering of the people instead of by faith in God. And, you know, I can greatly assure you if I were in Saul's shoes, sandals, I would myself be very, very, you know, unsettled by watching people run away. Fear is contagious. Um, courage is contagious and fear is conta contagious too. And so um, there'd be so much pressure too. But, you know, someone like David would have gone and sought the Lord by prayer and sought the Lord by the priesthood. He would have sought God when he's hard pressed by the people abandoning him. But um, Saul doesn't do that the right way. Um, so now this is one of the things, remember I said it seems like one of the ways of reading this book is to not think that it was two years after Saul was appointed king that this episode's happening because when Samuel first appointed Saul, he says, go to Gilgal and after seven days I'll meet you here. And in verse eight, it's talking about the seven days and Samuel's going to meet Saul at Gilgal. So it seems like this can't really be two years later because a few verse, chapters ago, um, Saul, Samuel said, I will see you in seven days at Gilgal. And so that command was there from, I think it was chapter 11. And now here it's picked up again. And so I think there's a connection there. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is another command that we didn't hear about. Maybe we're just being introduced to this command from Samuel to wait. And so it's possible that it's two different instances, but it seems like in the narrative, they're meant to be connected. Um, and so that's how I understand it. And that's why I think that the, the numbering of those years to make the two years how long Saul has reigned until this point isn't the best interpretation of it. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So this is what happens. He sees the men leaving. That's what the word tells us. The people were scattering. And so we're sort of seeing this from Saul's perspective. And so Saul responds by saying, I'll do the offering that Samuel was supposed to do. And so now the offering is not being done by faith in God's prophet or in God. It's being done perfunctorily. It's being done like um, a ritual that needs to be performed. It just, quote unquote, needs to be done 
in order for you to be able to fight or maybe so that the people won't leave and so saul is um transgressing in unbelief even though he's doing a religious thing outwardly it's not in obedience and it's not in faith and then of course samuel shows up right when he's done and that's often the way it is right our faith fails us right at the last minute which is a great encouragement for us to not let our faith fail us because often right when it seems hardest is right when it's about to end in a trial right when it's the darkest of night is right when it starts to get lighter and so here it is if samuel saul had just waited another you know 10 minutes or half an hour um he would have not been caught out in his unbelief verse 11 and samuel said what have you done and samuel said when i saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the philistines had mustered at michmash I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Okay, and so here we have Saul um, revealing his heart. And so I'm going to walk us through this. There is a defensiveness in here, right? So he sees the people leaving. Oh, I've got to take care of the people, he's saying to himself. He's presenting it as, I don't want the people to leave, but it's more like I'm afraid of them leaving. And then he says, and you didn't come. So now it's Samuel's fault. You didn't come on time. So instead of I'm impatient, it's you didn't come. Um, and then the Philistines had mustered. Instead of it's like, I'm trusting the Lord. It's like, look at how terrible the Philistines are. And so this is a series of excuses that are being used. Um, and then he's going to try to spin it as something to do with the Lord. Because he's like, oh, the Philistines will come down against me and I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So he's even kind of admitting he knows he did wrong, but he's saying, I, I did wrong for a good purpose. And we'll see what Samuel thinks of that, that angle of lawyeristic defensiveness. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Okay, so this is a huge deal. Just remember how Saul thought he could excuse himself out of this? It, similarly to how Israel didn't really think that asking for the king was a big deal, even though the Lord thought it was a big deal. But Samuel understood that Saul was under a command from the Lord to wait for him to come there. And Saul has, re Samuel, sorry, Saul, I get so tongue-tied about this. Saul had rejected that commandment from God by doing the offering himself. That's the true perspective here, not the muddled perspective of Saul. And now the cost is that the kingdom isn't going to last forever. And so this is the thing about a kingdom, right? It's supposed to be handed down to descendants. But now God's saying it won't. And essentially what this is calling down is that the sons of Saul are not going to be able to reign. And, and this is the root behind them dying in battle many chapters later. But now instead, God's going to choose a man after his own heart to be the commander and prince because Saul wasn't faithful. Okay, and so here's this, this issue. I think I've touched on it before. Remember, the people wanted a king just like all the nations, and God gave them a king just like all the nations, an unbelieving king or a half-believing king, a king who acts like an unbeliever. That's what they wanted. That was, that's what they got. Now, because the unbelief is being revealed, God is going to seek out a man after his own heart. So now God's going to pick his own king who will be a man of faith, 
a king of faith and a uh, type of the Christ who will come to rule over his people. So this is where redemption really starts to take off here. With the first king, there's mercy by God saying, I'm going to rescue Israel through this guy, but now he's going to pick out a true king who's going to be a man of faith and a true worshiper and a man really blessed by God. Verse 15, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. That's where Saul is from. So they separate here. We don't hear about Saul's response. We just hear about Samuel um, telling him the consequences of Saul's actions. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. That's the end of verse 15. So again, I talked about uh, Gideon earlier having not that many men after having had a larger army and now the same things happened to Saul. The sacrifice of outward religiousness didn't do its job of keeping the men and everybody watched Samuel leave in a huff and so now only about 600 men are still with Saul. Verse 16, And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders went out from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, to the land of Shul, the other company turned towards Beth Horon, and the other company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, towards the wilderness. Okay, and so I think we'll call it quits for the day here, but this is meant to be a picture of how distrait or what dire straits they're in there. Um, Samuel has left after uttering a consequence. Saul only has 600 men and there's so few people gathered together to defend Israel that the Philistines can now send out these raiding parties with impunity. Now armies um, march on their feet, they require on their stomachs, excuse me, they require a lot of food. And when you're on enemy territory, you don't want to eat your own food there. You go out there and you gather food from the enemy in order to weaken them and supply yourself. But this is what's going on. There's three raiding parties heading in different directions, gathering food from Israel, pillaging Israel for the Philistines, and they can't be stopped. So this is just how bad things have gotten is that the foreign army is there and they're already eating up Israel, and Saul has just 600 men and can't really do anything about it. So here's a good lesson. Saul is in a place where he needs to be a man of faith as the king of Israel, and he's acting instead as a man of the flesh. He's looking at the size of armies. He's looking at sacrifice as a religious event to manipulate God instead of a faith act done in obedience to God's word. And now he's been rejected by Samuel. And in this moment, Samuel will come back, but the kingship is lost from him. And it almost reminds me of Esau, how Esau traded away his birthright for a pot of lentil stew from his brother. He just didn't value what was right in front of him, what he had. And Saul had the kingship and he didn't value it. And he showed his lack of valuing it by not obeying the command of the man who made him king, Samuel. So this is a good reminder to us to really take our lives seriously, to take our Holy Spirit seriously, to take our Christ seriously, to take the commands of God seriously, not to live under fear, 
but to remind ourselves that we're people of faith. We live by faith and not by the flesh. We operate by trusting God and not by manipulating the world and manipulating people. And to humble ourselves when we're in trouble, when we're afraid, to seek the Lord first from our hearts instead of trying to manage events from the flesh. And may God help us do these very things. And amen.